This is an ABC podcast. Some weeks on the minefield, we respond to the issue that is just dominating the news cycle in a given week at a particular moment in time. Sometimes we say things that have absolutely nothing to do with the news cycle because we just want to escape it and talk about something that's very high-minded because that's the way we are as people. Other times, like today, we do neither of those things. What we do is we look backwards over our shoulder and survey the wreckage of the previous week's news cycle. Um, It's the only way I can think of describing this week's edition of The Minefield. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hey, Scott. Chuckling away in the background. Yes, yes. Hello. Happy with that description? (laughs) Very much so. And in fact, in fact, I think there's a kind of virtue about that, about waiting until the dust settles, waiting to be able to survey the wreckage properly. Um, I don't know if you recall, Waleed, but a couple of years ago, we did... What, what remains for me, one of, I think, the best shows that we did about uh, media culture and the rhythm or the cycle of the media and the preparedness to take news slow, not just slow in reporting, I think there's a real virtue in that, but also slow in the consumption. Why do we need to follow things as they happen? Is there a certain virtue? Is there something that's instructive, that's constructive possibly even, about waiting until things are done and then looking back and seeing what there is to learn? And I think that's, uh, look, I mean, the last thing, to be perfectly honest, I wanted to discuss over the last few weeks was the religious discrimination bill. I think it's one of those many, many topics that have dominated our common life that that's actually been worse because of the amount of commentary, because of the amount of, uh, I think, either poor reporting or invested reporting or partial reporting or forms of commentary and opinion that have maybe drawn the lines a bit too sharply that have tried to enlist people into this, that, or the other ideological camp, but also that's done the debate at such a distance that the most vulnerable who are most exposed to the debate cannot help but end up being, I don't know quite else how to put this, Willie, so please forgive me, Mm. problems that need to be solved or, or problems that need to be taken to account but not fully-fledged people to whom we owe utmost attentiveness and concern. So for me, just about everything about the debate surrounding the religious discrimination bill, which remember, well, I mean, this has been going on for years, since at least 2013. It's accelerated, of course, over the last few months, once the prime minister introduced the bill formally into parliament in November last year. But this is just awful. I think uh, the fact that a bill which commanded an 84 majority, an 84 vote majority in the lower house, uh, and yet which ran aground, there's something about that that's a little bit shocking. And yet at the same time, and I know I don't, I don't have to convince you of this, wasn't there a kind of tragic inevitability about this? It's surprising that the bill has run aground. It's surprising that the problems that are presented within it and surrounding it with cognate bills, for instance, or with cognate acts or amendments to cognate acts, it's kind of surprising that this should have brought all of this to a hiatus for the foreseeable future, but it's also inevitable. I mean, there was no other conclusion, I think, 
then that we wouldn't be able to solve this particular issue. Well, and more than that, that we would not be able to solve it and everyone would walk away upset. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there was a that's, way. That's a rare, I mean, that is a rare feat. Yeah, it? although it's becoming easier to achieve. Yeah, this is true. I, feel. <laughs> I love um, that. But yeah. there was an alternative way, and that was that the parliament, I was going to say the government, but really it's the parliament, isn't it? Mm, the parliament right. simply choose who it wants to upset and commit mm. to that. But the problem is that no one really in the parliament I think was acknowledging that they were the choices. So let me put this in more explicit terms. Um, right. if, if you look at the language, I'm here focusing actually, and this is an important point to make, not on the entirety of the bill, much yeah, of which right. it seems is actually uncontroversial, hmm. but on the flashpoint that dominated the media cycle, which was the question of um, religious schools being able to exclude gay or trans kids um, uh, it's complicated putting them in the one category because they kind of got split in the end. But yeah. You know what I mean? That's right. On the basis I, it's a, of, Sorry, go on. Well, well, just before you go too much further, can I just point out, because I think this has been missed entirely, that that particular issue is not an issue with a religious discrimination bill. It's an yeah. issue bound up with an amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act. Yeah, but that act being amended by the Religious Discrimination Bill. So it's not dealing with the religious discrimination part of the bill, but it is um, a consequence of the Religious Discrimination Bill, yes. Mm. But anyway, so so that particular flashpoint was the one that proved particularly insoluble that caused everyone to walk away upset. And the the thing that struck me as I listened to politicians talk about this, either in their respective chambers or publicly, was that all seemed to forge ahead with this idea that there can be no discrimination. We need to protect kids. Um, and let's just focus on kids rather than teachers for now. Yeah. Um, we, we need to protect kids from discrimination and we can do this while allowing everybody to observe their religion. And I remember looking at that and going, well, no, that that's that's the fundamental problem here is that you seem to think some kind of accommodation is possible. Now, it's true that an accommodation is possible in most cases with most expressions of religiosity and most religious schools, probably even the overwhelming majority, but they're not the areas where the law has anything to say that will make a difference. Mm -hmm. The areas where the law would become relevant, precisely where those two things cannot be reconciled, and the City Point Christian College is, I understand, a very rare example, but nonetheless an example of that, right, where... Clearly, and you know, I can only presume the people who run that school felt that they were in some way religiously bound to stand by a particular statement of values, their particular understanding of Christianity that required their students to embody and sign up to a set of values that did exclude gay and trans kids. At least that was, mm -hmm. and then they issued that contract very late in the day. And no doubt there's a whole very complicated backstory as to why they did that. There is, yes. All that sort of stuff, which is not really the purview of this show, but okay, I'm, I understand that was all there. But nonetheless, the whole point was, this was a moment of values that were incommensurable. Mm. It's not that there was some kind of happy compromise or accommodation to be reached. It was that there was no what they would in succession call a landing zone for the deal, right? There, there was no point at which these two groups of people, so quality advocates and um, religious schools of the kind that City Point is, where they could all happily agree that this is a 
an acceptable compromise. In other words, both sides of that argument would feel that wherever you landed on it, something sacred and inviolable was being violated. In the case of equality advocates, the norm of non-discrimination, which they put forward as something that should be absolute, that is not subject to other considerations. It is the absolute. And in the case of um, the City Point style religious schools, the, their ability not only to express their religion, but to be free from state interference such that they mm-hmm. would be forced to violate their religion. And I think it's a really important distinction that very yeah, few people right. have drawn. It's, it's one thing to say you have religious freedom, but you can't express it here. It's another thing to say, no, the state will force you to violate your religious doctrine as you understand it, assuming you understand it in good faith, right? Those two things are just incommensurate. And so that's why everyone had to walk away upset <laughs> because the minute your starting point was we can only, we, you know, we will find uh, there, are way... no lo- there are no losers. Yes. When your starting point is everybody can be accommodated, there are no losers, then you're we can We trouble. can give full expression to these respective rights. Well, no. At the margins of this controversy, it was a zero-sum game. And everyone seemed to say this, especially people who were voting for the Labor amendments to the bill. So Labor said this very explicitly. Um, the coalition moderates, the Liberal moderates who crossed the floor said this. This became a bit of a trope. Now, I think this is interesting for reasons that go beyond the religious discrimination bill. So the way mm-hmm. I, I would put it is where you have a situation like this, the parliament is given a few options. One is please no one um, and let it all fall in a heap like they did. Not deliberately, but how, which is what they did. Two is choose a winner which is not just a matter of politics, although I suspect it becomes that in the end, but it's not just a matter of, you know, who are the best group of people for us to upset here and who's the group of people we really need to win. It's not just that. It also then becomes a statement in a sense of liberal democratic theory, right? Which mm-hmm. which right or which claim is the one that the liberal state can most legitimately violate? That's, that's really the question it would be answering there. Or the third option, which is the option that I tentatively favour, is don't deal with this in legislation at all and find some non-legislative way of doing it. And there I've proposed doing it through the conditions on which you grant schools public funding, which is a separate show. We can discuss that another time, but I'm just yep. flagging that as a, you know, another theoretical possibility. But the real... The interesting philosophical questions for me that go beyond this debate really come down to how is liberalism, given that we live in a liberal democracy that is built on liberalism, broadly speaking, how is liberalism meant to respond to this? Can it, like, does it have an answer to what I think we agree is a paradox here, a a sort of insoluble puzzle? Can it solve it? And this is where I think things get philosophically really intricate because the non, the whole idea of liberalism as I'm going to simplify it is that it's a theory of limitations on state action, right? It's basically saying the state has no business intervening unless it is intervening to prevent harm. Mm-hmm. So the individual or institutions within society, whether they be corporations or civil society associations or whatever, they are to be free from government intervention except at the point 
where what they do harms others. And the non-discrimination argument goes that these religious ideas, these religious doctrines, not actually just as expressed in um, expulsion criteria at schools, but I think people go further than this and say, to the extent they exist at all as religious mm. teachings, are harmful. To the, to the extent that they are held beliefs. Yes, to, communicated to the extent beliefs. That, yeah. Yes, to the extent that there exists within a shared society people who exist that believe that another group of people who exist within that same shared society are inherently uh, disordered, sinful, perverted, dot, 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 dot. Yes, which I think is in some ways an over-reading of what the religious claim is, although there are certainly religious expressions that are exactly like that. Yes. But, but nonetheless, the, note the argument there that's a really interesting argument, which is here, the expression of beliefs is in and of itself harmful. And to put that in liberal terms, you would be saying harmful in a way and to an extent that justifies state intervention. Mm -hmm. In other words, once you boil this down, and I hope I haven't jumped through this too quickly for people to follow or explained it badly, but once you boil this down, this becomes an argument about what exactly does the harm principle cover? Yeah. Because it seems to me that... I mean, everyone would agree, I think, who sort of is interested in the canons of liberal democracy, that freedom of conscience is really fundamental and that the state does not have a legitimate right under a liberal democratic order to either determine people's consciences or to compel them to assent to a particular orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, liberalism is set up precisely for the person who dissents. Right. Hmm. So we, if we accept that as a sort of foundational principle, what kind of harm suspends that rule? And here the kind of harm that's being discussed is very much a psychological harm with evidence that, you know, these sorts of teachings and these sorts of environments lead people to do things that are really tragic, like self-harm or, or commit suicide or hmm. live with a kind of existential angst. But it's not the same kind of harm as the classic liberal formulation of my freedom to swing my fist ends where your nose begins, right? It's not a sort of direct physical harm in that sort of way. And so what becomes interesting is if we are going to expand the harm principle or treat the harm principle in such a way that it allows state intervention where there is indirect somehow mediated, that is, or psychological harm or existential angst or whatever caused by someone's freedom of conscience, then that seems to me a case where you're, you're now expanding the harm principle in ways that at least I hadn't understood it. Now, maybe that's my problem. Maybe I haven't understood it properly. But I'm not sure there is a... Is there a classical kind of orthodox liberal conception of harm that stretches that far? Because if you do stretch it that far, consider all the things that it must also sweep up that we wouldn't do. Now, I'm not saying there I have answers to this, but I'm saying that seems to be the philosophical side of controversy here, is what exactly does the harm principle cover? And is it just too impossibly vague for liberal democracies to have coherent responses to issues like this? Look, this is really difficult, Walid. I respect I admire the clarity 
with which you try to lay out that particular understanding of the matter at hand. Um, what makes it more difficult for me is that I think, certainly in terms of broad outline, and maybe in terms of kind of the unifying conceptual or theoretical or ethical thread that runs through it, I think you and I are in profound agreement. There are all sorts of things, however, <laughs> that as you lay it out, I, I find myself wanting to pick you up at various points and maybe put a slightly different slant on the entire matter. Sure. So let me, let, let me try to do it very briefly, and then I'm just going to have to resign myself to maybe some of the points of difference coming out in the course of our further conversation. I do think it's, it's worth pointing out that certainly in terms of harm, the nature of harm, the limitations of the harm principle, if you go back to someone like John Stuart Mill, who gave the classical expression of the degree to which the only purpose with which the state can curtail the liberties of another human being, being where those liberties uh, inflict or exact or cause harm to other persons. I think you're absolutely right that the harms that are envisaged there are restricted. They are minimal. They probably have mostly to do with, uh, with property and with physical or bodily well-being and probably less to do with emotional distress, much less, let's say, moral distress. Yep. However, the very fact that that's how John Stuart Mill put the matter fit within his broader conception that a liberal society ought to welcome forms of what he, this is not exactly his term, but I think it's probably the best way of describing it, that a liberal society should welcome forms of ethical confrontation where people who have different beliefs, who adopt different lifestyles, who don't conform to a kind of prevailing status quo, those expressions of belief, of conviction, of moral standing, those displays of, say, nonconformist lifestyle, they ought to be welcomed uh, within, within particular degrees. And I think Mill was far more, far more nuanced than people often give him credit for. But that should be welcomed on the understanding that there are few things that are worse than, on the one hand, a kind of lazy status quo. This is the way I am because this is the way my parents were. This is the way society is. So there's a kind of soporific conformity where one simply adopts whatever it is that has gone before. And, and for Mill, you know, Mill was enough of a moral perfectionist that no society can sustain, can withstand, uh, or can survive that kind of drift towards uh, intellectual and moral mediocrity. Um, so there ought to be these, this kind of frisson. There ought to be this, uh, this generation of ethical confrontation whereby we are arrested by, we are stunned by, we are taken aback and maybe even offended by the moral beliefs, the displays of alternate forms of life of other people, not so that we end up adopting those ourselves. In other words, it's not just about persuasion. It's not just about adopting other forms of conformity, but that by that very interaction, it's almost the accumulation of minor and partial truths that are expressed within the interaction of all these different viewpoints, all these other expressions of conscience and belief and practice, that something like society's upward advance is achieved. So John Stuart Mill was a teleologist. He did believe that the internal principle of utilitarianism was the total benefit, not necessarily to individuals, but to society as a whole. So that individual forms or localized or particular forms of offense can iron out over time as society gets better and better and better through this. And are the necessary process by which that advancement yes, occurs. Yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Perfectly said. 
So, so that means that in a very real way, Mill subordinated the concerns and to some extent the dignity of individuals for the sake of the broader progress of society. Now, Mill, of course, had a very, very high sense of individual sovereignty, the sovereignty of, of the person, of bodily integrity, and so on. But that kind of upward, of, upward advance of the progress, the inherent progress of society through this kind of uh, process of ethical confrontation, and even moral distress, uh, these are all things that Mill, that Mill welcomed. I think to some extent... While there's something in that that is to be commended, and while Mill also, I mean, really was, I think, quite forthright about the sort of people who have no business weighing into public debate, people who, for instance, he described them as people who read too quickly and read too much to be able to speak intelligently God, that's or moderately. <laughs> exactly. No, no, that's, that's precisely right. So there are some people who said that you know, because of their habits, because of their immoderateness, they should not be accorded the same role, the same place within public debate and ethical confrontation. At the same time, I think Mill probably wasn't right to subordinate let's put it this way, or human dignity and individual preciousness to society's advance as a whole. And if we turn things around and say, what are those forms of debate, of ethical confrontation, even, even forms of confrontation that produce forms of moral distress, where who I am and what I believe is subjected to something like uh, scrutiny, or where someone holds up something radically different. And I think one of the things that Mill did not see clearly enough, and I think someone like John Rawls did, and someone like Jeremy Waldron has, and someone like Martha Nussbaum certainly does, is that there are certain forms of ethical confrontation, there are certain expressions of public debate that so toxify the air of society's common life that it effectively subjects some people to a condition of moral suffocation. They cannot breathe the shared air because of the, thing, the sorts of things that have been said in the course of our common life. And that's why, you know, you might be surprised to hear me say this, Willie, and, and, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm surprised to hear myself say it. I think John Rawls, you know, this is, this is in Mill. I, I really do believe this. His governing principle of sociality, the importance of sociality, the importance of consideration that we give to other people in the way that we frame and express and argue what it is we say. But John Rawls's kind of insistence on the underlying moral sentiments that allow there to be a kind of disposition which tends towards peaceableness and mutual consideration the cultivation, I mean, he framed it in terms of public reason, but, but what it really is, the willingness to say things that we truly believe, but with half an eye, maybe even both eyes, on how those things will be received can be heard by our neighbors. Are these things that we believe, they're not said in a vacuum, they're not absolute statements. These are things that will be heard by others. These are things that we may believe that will either toxify or purify the air, the civic air that other people believe. So I, I think on every front, it's not just that we have mutual toleration, toleration of maximal difference on the one hand versus the regulatory rule of the harm principle on the other. It's that as much mutual accommodation for one another and their differing conceptions of the good within a liberal order ought to be allowed for. 
that ought to be allowed for as much as we can possibly manage. And so for, I don't think law is the only way or even the best way of doing this. Well, yeah, that's my point. Yeah. But the law has to operate in order for it to be even-handed. It has to operate in terms of rules and exceptions. Uh, exceptions that give where at all possible uh, the highest degree of mutual accommodation up to the point at which the behavior, the speech of others so toxifies the conditions of our common life that our fellow citizens who are owed maximum dignity, whose preciousness ought to be the highest rule, I think, in our common life, uh, where they can no longer find their breath, they can no longer express themselves. Um, Once we reach the point within a liberal order where we are bound together in a condition of mutual intimidation, where we're terrified of one another, where we're suspicious of what other people believe about us, that consigns us, that confines us and imprisons us to a condition of what I think can only be described as moral suffocation. So I think that is a dimension of the harm principle Mills certainly didn't have in mind. Yeah. But someone like John Rawls and certainly someone like Martha Nussbaum absolutely has. Okay. And that's why I, I just don't think that forms of expression or even expressions of conscience can ever be regarded in any morally healthy community, certainly a pluralistic community, uh, as being absolute. They always need to give consideration. They always need to be subjected to a kind of governing principle of sociality where whatever it is we say is something that either uh, enlivens and uh, lightens the air that we breathe together, creates the conditions where people can express themselves and be heard, or pollutes those conditions such that other people cannot be heard, other people cannot express themselves. Okay, so so this this is brilliantly distilled. What you've done there is brilliant. I just don't think it solves the conundrum. Well, well, no, you're right. And, And sorry, I'll just say this one last thing. That, what I've just described... Law can't do that. Exactly. The law provides the, the external barriers beyond which society cannot go, but it's the cultivation of a common space within which dignity and preciousness are cultivated, but within which, again, not tolerate, I actually don't, I hate the term toleration, but mutual accommodation is sought. That's something that, that is part of our civic culture. It's something that is a part of a principle of sociality and, and mutual recognition rather than yep. simply the purview of the but law. But everything you've said is really about speech. And I think the problem is this bill isn't actually about speech. It's about something different. And liberalism has recognised what you've been saying for ages, which is why we have hate speech regulation, for example, and it's Mm. relatively uncontroversial, even though the limits or the barriers, the boundaries of it are. The concept of it isn't really that controversial. But that's why I think we always come back in the case of a bill like this to try to articulate exactly what kind and extent of harm we think it's legitimate for the, the liberal state to intervene on. And I think everything you say is important. I'm just not sure it goes to the heart of this matter. Anyway, we'll crunch this through with our guest, I think, because that'll probably help us out, (laughs) I suspect. Um, You are listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can also catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Our guest is Helen Pringle. She's Associate Professor in the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales. One of the many reasons, quite apart from simply being brilliant, that we wanted Helen to come on the show is that she is one of the finest, one of the subtlest readers of John Stuart Mill that I know. Helen, thank you so much for coming back and joining us on The Minefield. 
Oh no, thank you for having me. Um, I've just been sitting sort of fascinated by the discussion and thinking, I agree. And I sort of thought, if I say agree, they'll say, what do you agree to? And I'm kind of, I agree. It's a, to be in that position of difficulty about, and to have to have a privilege of being in a position of, of difficulty and to say there's something that you don't get very often, um, mm. going back to the question of the media as well, yeah. Well, well, look, let's let, let's begin, since this is well and truly within your field of expertise. I'm just hoping that you can maybe help me and Waleed out and give us a very clear sense of just what it is that John Stuart Mill was claiming in the name of the harm principle, but also the limits to the harm principle. How mm. how far did he see its regulative role reaching? And mm. is it a primary principle or is it in fact subordinate to another principle? Um, let me start with, uh, let me begin with the second question. Yeah, I think it isn't a primary regulative principle. I think that the sovereignty principle, that principle of the of the sovereignty of the individual is actually the primary principle. And that harm is more of a marker of not only where that, that principle is violated, but where we can understand it, we can reasonably understand it to have been violated in terms of state action in particular. So I would say harm is is a measure or a marker more than the principle itself. So the principle itself would be the sovereignty of the person or and involving all those considerations that you raised about the preciousness of, of the person, which I think is, and the dignity of the person. So I think I, I just crucial here. But one other thing that I would throw in about harm in Mill, and then I want to get on if we have time to questions about the explosion of the harm principle and what it means. One other thing is chapter five of On Liberty, which sometimes you get the feeling that people just don't get to, which is very common in reading philosophical works. It's true and understandable. But chapter five is about concerns and those questions of limitations. And one of the, the the chief limitation, I think, is that of slavery. So Mill talks about slavery as rolling over or steamrolling um, these other questions. And he's, it's almost like he walks back, as we say, you know, um, nowadays. Um, he, he walks back on the harm principle there by saying, well, actually, if you try to enslave anybody, and even if it is consensual, then, sorry, but, you know, that's because consent comes into harm as well. Then then Mill says, Well, sorry, you know, this is an absolute prohibition. There is there is no question about allowing slavery. And just as I've discussed with you, um, Scott, slavery also Mill isn't talking only about um the the slave system of the United States of his time or the the very recent abolition of the transatlantic slave trade and and the slave system, everything that went into it, but he's talking also in particular about the enslavement of um, women very specifically. So a lot of questions come into um, Mill's own understanding and elaboration of harm. And it's important, I think, to place that the initial ringing statements about harm, the one, the very simple objective of this book and so forth, and the very simple of the, this objective of this book of On Liberty becomes very complicated by the end of it. <laughs> so this, And that's not a bad thing. You know, I, I think one thing that I was sort of speaking to Scott about too before this was the importance of difficulty and of complexity and of being able to stay as we would say nowadays also in that space, you know, of thinking, well, 
I mean, I'm with Walid on, on this as well. Is some questions are insoluble, so they need a solution and they need a at least a temporary way to address them. But they are fundamentally insoluble. Yeah, which is not a comfortable thing to have to say, but I, I think it's inescapable. But I... inescapable. But maybe we can instead of thinking of it. Sorry, Walid, I've got. But maybe instead of thinking of it as uncomfortable. Maybe we could start to think of it, and I, I haven't sort of thought of enough about this, but maybe we can start to think about being stunned by, or what Scott was talking about, stunned by and arrested by disagreement as a form of wonder, you know, that, mm. my God, there are people in this in this world who are like that. They're, you know, we wonder that the world should be like this. How marvellous that there are people who are so weird that we can't even comprehend why on earth or, you know, what WTF is going on here. And, and I'm reminded of, there's just one last thing, I just think I'm reminded of not Mill so much here, but Locke in one of his diaries in the 17th century is walking along the road in England and a naked man, this is in the kind of middle of the, of the ferment of the civil war, when all of these questions were at issue about religious freedom. And I think we forget that this is such a valuable laboratory, those questions, the 17th century. And a man walks towards Locke on the road naked. This is in England. <laughs> you don't usually see that in England. Um, and he's breathing fire, breathing smoke. And Locke sort of, ah, that's interesting. <laughs> that somebody should approach the world in that way and that we should have to find a way of living with, as Scott says. Conviviality, I think, is a is a good term there as well. You know, that how can we live with somebody who is so bizarre and so far from us and who has such, not just a different um, kind of experience of harm, but a different understanding altogether of what harm is and what constitutes it. So, I mean, I think they are insoluble problems. And the Religious Discrimination Bill says at the beginning, reiterates, you know, that kind of formula, which is valuable, which is that human rights are indivisible and universal, but, you know, just making that statement doesn't isn't going to help you no, much, is it? No, I have to say, I've maybe this is scandalous of me to say, but I've grown a little tired of hearing human rights lawyers say that because it's like, well, that's a nice thing to say, but it really just glosses over the fact that within human mm. rights there are insoluble tensions. And so Great. you say mm. that and then come up with a doctrine, legal or otherwise, to say this one should prevail over that mm. and then expect everyone to go, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what human rights is. And it's actually, well, no, that therein lies the contest. <laughs> Once you say yeah. this is uh, indivisible, then you're going to have a fight over what has to prevail at these points mm. of time. Anyway, I'm ranting on that. Um, the remainder. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So your idea of wonder, I think, is a lovely idea, but it sort of runs aground for people, doesn't it, at the point where mm. they decide, sometimes on perfectly legitimate grounds, um, mm. or, or at least perfectly understandable grounds, that the other person's difference is the cause of harm. Mm. And it seems mm. to be that, that that's certainly what the equality advocate side of the religious discrimination bill is saying, is mm. that you living by your values is, causes an intolerable harm. Mm. And if you pushed the sort of city point style argument to its limits, you may well find that as well. They would say, sorry, but these lifestyles or these approaches to gender and sexuality are harmful. 
of something. Mm. They would have their own. I mean, it's hard for me to speak for them, I have to say, but you know what mm. I mean? They would probably formulate mm. it in the same way. In which case, we're kind of back where we started, which is, okay, so whose conception of harm prevails? Or perhaps more precisely put, does the harm principle have a mode of articulation that can adjudicate on these things? And this is where, to put my cards on the table, this is where I just think liberalism fails. The harm principle, it seems to me, is it has to be, it just is vague. <laughs> like, and for all the attempts to try to nuance it, you end up in the vagary. So in this particular case, I think that gets shown up really well because the argument that these teachings or the environments that exist within these schools are harmful to particularly vulnerable kids who are still trying to work out who they are and you know are probably likely to be damaged by exposure to these kinds of things. Adults may be a different story, but you know, you're talking about a very vulnerable age and all that sort of stuff. Those arguments, I think, need to be taken seriously. They, they're not specious arguments. And I think to the extent that people who run those religious schools sort of just swap them away as though they're pointless arguments, I, th I think they're doing something grave there. I think they, they really do need, even if they don't ultimately change their position, I think they need to reckon with that. Like it's, it's a very real argument. But where it goes for me is interesting because if you're going to recognise that kind of harm as worthy of state intervention and justifying state regulation, then it seems to me there are all other kinds of harm that would have to get swept up as in that, as meeting that level. I mean, the harm caused by alcohol consumption in society is, mm. I, I would argue, probably greater than most other harms that we that we do assent to and and I would say more than the psychological harms that are created and not just to the people sorry that are being discussed in the religious discrimination case and not just to people who consume the alcohol but to other people who have to deal with the consequences of their actions and yes we regulate alcohol consumption but you could justify far more heavy-handed intervention than we would be prepared to tolerate once you expand the harm principle in this way. Yeah. Um, and we are seeing, and I think this is especially the case in progressive politics at the moment, um, a radical expansion of what harm means. So this occurs, and I'm sure you'd be familiar with this, on university campuses where someone yeah. giving a speech that, an academic speech that has content that is deeply offensive to a particular group of people is not deemed offensive, it's deemed harmful. And therefore, yep. it should not be aired and there must be a deplatforming sort of process. It seems to me this is all of a piece of, of the kind of discussion we're having around the Religious Discrimination Bill where it's conceiving of a kind of harm that I just don't think liberalism really countenances or can countenance without losing its fundamental character as liberalism, which isn't to say it has nothing to say in the public debate. It's just to say that I'm not sure liberalism has can respond in a sort of compelling way here. Hmm. Yeah, I think that um, that um, all of that is just on the uh, on the side. I absolutely agree with you about alcohol, um, and I think it's a particularly difficult question in Australia where there's such a cult of alcohol as well. You know, it's an unrecognised cult. You know, for people who don't drink or don't drink very much, like me, you know, the constant pressure to to drink is is quite something, and I think Mill also had that in mind when he talked about the pressure to conform. So not just he was concerned not just with state action or state legislation, but he was also concerned with those questions about social conformity and the conformity enforced by public opinion. 
he Neil, of course, was very wondrous at other people's experiments in life, but um, he didn't take kindly to people who made comments, even stray comments at dinner parties about his relationship with Harriet Taylor when she was Harriet Taylor, and not very well at all. But I think that Neil, the problem with stopping with Neil here is that it's quite clear that this is not the harm principle is not one very simple principle and it's not simple and partly I think he didn't really explore this enough except as I said before in terms of terms of those prohibitions in slavery but I think he really didn't come to to terms necessarily with the types of considerations that we'd moderns we more moderns rather than more moderns do so a very good guide to questions about harm very long <laughs> on liberty is very thin but Joel Feinberg of course wrote four volumes on this question of harm and how to differentiate it from other things like offence and traditionally that's been seen as the main kind of contrast so if we want to understand harm, what harm is we begin by this or proceed by distinguishing between harm and offence and mere offence as it's often called and that dispute about offence as distinct from harm was of course involved in the in the long 18C deliberations all through the 2000s and 2010s as well. Era, yeah. yeah, the Racial Discrimination Act. But I think what you have in... Bernard Harcourt also has written about the collapse of the harm principle and he's actually returned to his original formulation of that as well and talked about how harm has been... How, how the very notion of harm has been transformed. So in the 19th century when Mill is writing, there's not there's not as much kind of emphasis on things like intellectual theft or fraud or um, there's not the same number of remedies. And so it's only in the 20th century after Mill has long died that you get a sense of um, non-tangible harm in that, uh, if you can call intellectual property a non-tangible harm, but certainly non-tangible in the sense of it's not a contact injury like a punch in the nose, you know, which everybody's like, oh yeah, that's harm. And that's often what's given as, a, mm. as an example of harm is that kind of direct physical physical contact, except if you're a doctor, of course. So <laughs> so even then, physical harm is not necessarily as straightforward as it as they think it is. It consent comes into that question and mm. consent and, and willingness. But also, once we start to admit Questions of discrimination, um, the expansion of trauma as well as a as a gauge of harm or as a form of harm, the infliction of of trauma. Questions about affront, and here like in in his works, Joel Feinberg talks about offence which goes beyond just mere offence or simple offence, and all sorts of other sort of questions that we talk about. And beyond that, Harcourt in his work also points out well even with a range of a greater range of things that we now consider as in the ambit of harm, quick emotional distress and trauma, even without that, you know, we still have that original problem as well, which is that your harm is not mine. We each have our and again here I suppose you go to Hobbes as each has his conception of the good and for Hobbes the only agreement is on what the greatest evil is the greatest evil is Death or untimely, rather untimely death at the at the hands of another. And, well, yeah. yes, but this gets complicated by the fact that here, what's often invoked is untimely death at the hand of oneself, which is then attributed yes. to another. Yes, 
Yes. I mean, yes. does Hobbes have anything to say about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> he doesn't. But it's a salutary, very salutary kind of caution that he gives us, which is that each is for himself or for, he doesn't talk about herself, but I'm, I'm going to, that each is for him or herself the, the best knower of what is harmful to them. And, you know, you can't, for Hobbes, you can't argue with that. You can only come to some kind of modus Vivendi, yeah. you know. Except, and, except you, um, you must argue with it if you're the state because you have to make a judgment. You have things. to, yeah. yes. Um, yes. That is the very sage voice, by the way, of Helen Pringle, who's Associate Professor in the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens, my co-host. This is so weird for me. I think I want to speak up for liberalism on this point. Mm-hmm. Because as, as suspicious as I might be of John Stuart Mill's, and I don't want to stick with him, but John Stuart Mill's teleological frame, that essentially penultimate forms of moral distress caused by fierce ethical confrontation and the challenge of another person's life, conviction, beliefs, and so forth, that that can kind of be smoothed away or justified or, or else moral distress can be sacrificed on the altar of social progress or of, of progress of human beings as, as, as a whole. I mean, there's something about that that I, I guess I find suspicious to the point of almost being unjust, unjustifiable. I'm, I'm just not sure that anything in the meantime can be sacrificed for the sake of some future human society. However, there is something about that that I think is important that we cannot lose for fear of losing everything. And that is whatever else you want to say about forms of social teleology of that, you know, the, the, the ends that we seek justify a certain discomfort in the means, that what at least is being envisaged here is that we need one another. And that those social forces that might be locked in forms of fierce disagreement, they're not seeking the extermination or the disappearance or the mere acquiescence of another group. But there is something about mutual dependence, even among people who might be warring on, on either side of an ethical or political debate. There is something about that that I think is absolutely central that there is no conception of liberal society. There is no notion, I think, of mutual accommodation that doesn't hold fast to this idea that we don't want our opponents to go away. But there's something about having contexts, arenas, within which we can interact and disagree and recognize the extent to which our words really are harmful to others and recognize the extent to which one's moral vision of the world really does or does not overlap with mine. There's something about that interaction that contains within it the possibilities of, I don't want to overuse the term, but something more than mutual accommodation, something like the recognition of another person's moral intensity and moral energies. And I guess the one, the one point of slight, I don't think either of you were saying this, but I guess I would like to sort of plant a flag in the ground and say this as clearly as I can. As much as I, as I think I would like to agree about the overuse or even the opportunistic or even cynical use of the harm principle in some contexts, I think I would draw the line at saying to another person, whether publicly or to their face, in other words, by some sort of, you know, uh, say by social media, some mediator, 
that their harm isn't real or their harm isn't grave enough to be taken seriously or their harm is just confected. I think when another human being within a shared society expresses an extent of distress, can't you see what, what you're saying is doing to me? Can't you see the way this corrupts or pollutes the conditions within which I'm trying to live? It seems to me that anybody with a, with a modicum of moral sensibilities has to be arrested by that. Agreed, I, agreed. But can I ask you this, Scott? Yeah, I what know what's do you, next. Uh, oh, well, I'm not sure I do agree, but anyway. Okay, sure. Um, I agree with that as a broad principle, but the problem is in the course of public intercourse, it becomes so promiscuous. So, yeah. I mean, I can articulate a harm and be genuine in it about just about anything. Yeah. I mean... Godlessness is harmful, okay? What are you going to do with that? When you say bad things about the Anzacs, that's deeply harmful and injurious to to me or to the nation or to my family or to... I mean, I guess the problem I have is if we are going to elevate mere claims of harm, and when I say mere, I don't mean unreal or not deeply felt, but just they are... Expressions of expressions. Yes, yes, the claim of it and the expression of it should be enough. If we're going to elevate it to that level it becomes unworkable. You, you, you can't adjudicate that. No, I, and I think you're, you're slightly extending what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that once an expression of harm has been made, and I think, I mean, this is where sort of social media or the various, uh, various forms of, of debate at remove from one another really don't do us any good. But as soon as an expression of harm is made, it seems to me that that has to be taken seriously on the face of it and that we cannot reach for the morally cynical stance that I think I have access to your motivations that you do not have. I think you're using that in order to win or to... Yeah. In other words, the only way in which this works or makes sense is when there's an, a governing principle of sociality where we essentially make space for one another and a governing level of trust where we simply believe that another person isn't seeking my disappearance from our common life, but we are simply looking for the terms under which we can live together in ways that exceed mere tolerance. Um, Helen, I got the sense you wanted to disagree with Scott, which means you simply must have the last word here. What would you like to say? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I think there is, as I'm listening to Scott, I'm thinking I don't entirely disagree, but at the same time, you know, one can be mistaken and one can be greatly mistaken about in terms of evidence or in terms of some other, in terms of some value judgment about the nature of the harm, whether it is a harm, where it's coming from, what to do about it. Mm. So, I mean, as an example, we can, we can look at people's mistakes about, or people's mistaken views about the, about the effects of alcohol, for example, or, you know, about the extent of those things. And there is debate about, and there's debate about that too. It's not, it's not, I'm I'm not invoking a factual realm that I'm going to bring to bear on that, but, you know, the experts differ. Um, But, I don't think that that's, I think it it can't be our rule to take people's understandings of distress and as terrible as this might seem, I don't think we can take, we can take people's understandings of their own distress as the lodestone for, for these questions. No, Helen, I, sorry, just very briefly. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I agree entirely. Expressions of harm are not an absolute. Mm. However, 
they oughtn't be the end of conversation. They no. oughtn't be the end of no. conversation, but they should exert a kind of force or inflect mm -hmm. the conversation that then continues from that point. Mm -hmm. uh, um, public debate or dialogue or conversation or rhetoric cannot proceed as if that expression of harm didn't exist, but neither should that expression of harm simply suppress or stifle or muffle the conversation that, that follows. It seems to me we're not actually that far apart, Scott. It's just you're more talking about the way in which we conduct ourselves in a liberal democratic context. And perhaps Helen and I are talking more about the hard question of government intervention at the point at which it should occur. And so I've decided we're both right. What a great way to win. <laughs> they're, they're both important aspects. They are. Too, they're they're both very yeah, important. Yeah. Helen, thank you so much. It's just been such a joy talking to someone with the, your depth of knowledge on this. So we really appreciate your time. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me on. It's been just wonderful. And, um, yeah. Helen Pringle. So, oh, sorry, go on. If you're going to compliment no, no, us, I'll give you say, <laughs> Especially in this era of, of COVID, you know, when things are are so strange as well, and there's so little space for that kind of discussion. Oh. No, thank you very much, and, and, and to listen to other people speak about these questions in a, a non-dogmatic and non-confrontational way, I suppose. I mean, not that, again, not that I necessarily think confrontation is bad, but, mm. you know, in a, in a way that opens up space for another person to then speak and so forth is is really a great joy. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Scott's just going to clip that up and make that his ringtone. Yes, I am. <laughs> Helen Pringle is Associate Professor in the School of Social Sciences at the University of New South Wales, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. Just a very quick reminder, in a couple of weeks, we will have our succession show. So if you haven't got through watching all of it uh, before we get into The Minefield Not Quite a Book Club, then binge. You have my, uh, you have my permission to do that. Uh, indeed, you have a deadline. A couple of weeks, we'll get stuck into that. We'll see you for that then. We'll see you for something else next week. Thanks so much for listening to The Minefield today. Just a reminder that if anything we discussed has brought up any issues for you, help is available on Lifeline. The number is 13 11 14. That number again, 13 11 14. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.